After disaster, picking up the pieces is hard work. Today we'll see how the Israelites begin to pick up the pieces after their 70-year exile from the land. Thanks for listening to The Bible Brief. As Jeremiah had prophesied, after 70 years of exile from the land of Canaan, those exiles from the kingdom of Judah are allowed to return and rebuild the temple. The destruction of the temple in 586 B.C., to the reconstruction of a new temple in 516 B.C., bookend this 70-year period. However, the return to the land was not the mass population return that we might expect. Instead, this return to the land was accomplished in waves. The first wave focused on rebuilding the temple, and it was led by a man named Zerubbabel. The second wave of Israelites who returned were led by a man named Ezra, who led the people in a sort of religious revival and renewal of their commitment to God. They recommitted to uphold the law of God that he'd given the nation many years earlier when he led them out of their Egyptian slavery. Finally, the third wave was led by a man named Nehemiah. This was nearly a hundred years after the first wave led by Zerubbabel. Nehemiah's return is notable because of something we discussed in our prior episode. His return is concurrent with a decree issued by the Persian king Artaxerxes in the year 444 BC. This decree is to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. Remember in our last episode, we mentioned that a timeline was going to start when this decree went out. This timeline was that after the decree to rebuild Jerusalem was issued, there would be 483 years until the Messiah was killed. At this point, in 444 B.C., we can start that timeline and do just a little bit of math. Rather than a 365-day year like we count, a year for Israel was a 360-day year. So we know that the timeline, according to the book of Daniel that we discussed in our last episode, should be 483 years times 360 days, and if you can't do that in your head, it equals 173,880 days. Here's what's amazing about this. That number of days from the decree to rebuild Jerusalem in 444 BC puts us all the way to the year 33 AD, the year commonly associated with the crucifixion of Messiah. Yes, the Bible communicates exact timing of the crucifixion. It's amazing, but it shouldn't be surprising. After all, the God of the universe is the one behind the words of the Bible. Okay, so we've talked about the three waves of exiles who returned to the land long ago promised to Abraham and his offspring. But we need to also talk about a dramatic event that occurs around this same time. This event is the attempted annihilation of all the Jews in Persia. And this event largely revolves around four people. It all starts when the king of Persia throws a huge party. He and his friends are reveling in probable drunkenness and feasting, And the king, Ahasuerus, commands that his wife come to show off her beauty. Well, simply put, she refuses, and Ahasuerus is in a rage. He decides that he'll pick a new queen in place of the old one, and his advisors suggest a sort of Persia-wide beauty contest where all the beautiful women in the empire come to present themselves before the king. The king likes this idea and commands for it to be done. It's then that we meet Esther, the beautiful exile from the kingdom of Judah. She's encouraged by her uncle, who was apparently her adopted father, to take part in the event and yet hide her Jewish identity. So she eventually meets the king, 
Ahasuerus, and he's pleased with her over the other women, and so he decides to make Esther his new queen. After a while, Esther's uncle, Mordecai, gains favor with the king as well. Having made a practice of hanging out outside the palace, Mordecai overhears talk of a couple of palace guards who want to assassinate the king. He immediately makes it known to Esther, who subsequently tells Ahasuerus the king of this plot. He sentences the revolutionaries to hanging and ensures that Mordecai is remembered as the one who saved the king. Finally, after all these events, we meet the villain of the story, Haman. Haman was the most senior advisor to the king, and the king decides to honor Haman in this way. He says that all people in the palace should bow down to Haman when they see him in order to honor him. However, Haman is enraged when he sees that Mordecai, Esther's uncle, will not bow down to him. This begins the drama. Bitter at Mordecai, Haman goes to the king and asks that the king issue an edict to annihilate all the Jews in Persia. And the king issues an irrevocable decree and specifies that in about 11 months' time, on a particular date, the Jews are allowed to be annihilated and plundered by the other people in Persia. As you can imagine, when the news reaches the ears of the Jews, there is sadness and fear, including for Esther and Mordecai. However, Mordecai thinks that Esther may be able to aid the Jews given her position as queen, so he asks her to appeal to Ahasuerus. Now something you should know about Persian law in those days. No one could come unsummoned to the king and into his presence. To do so was risking death. But in order not to die, the king had to do a particular thing. He had to hold up his scepter in approval of your presence in order for you to be spared death. So Esther, knowing that she'll have to enter the king's presence unsummoned, begins praying. And after three days, she goes into the king's presence. Upon Esther's entrance, Ahasuerus the king holds up the scepter, and Esther gives the king an invitation to dinner. Which is kind of odd, right? You'd think that she'd tell the king exactly what she wants, but apparently she has a strategy here, and part of that strategy is inviting Haman to the same dinner as well. So later at this dinner, out of apparent curiosity, Ahasuerus makes quite an offer. He says to Esther, Whatever you ask will be given to you. And whatever you want, even to half my kingdom, will be done. This is Esther's opportunity. So she says this, This is my petition and my request. May the king and Haman come to the banquet I will prepare for them. Tomorrow I will do what the king has asked. We think to ourselves, what? Why didn't she take her opportunity? She just invites them to dinner again? Well, the king and Haman leave dinner. And there are some more things that happen in this interim period that we just don't have time to cover on this episode, so we'll skip to the dinner the next night. Once again, probably brimming with curiosity at this point, the king says to Queen Esther the next night, Whatever you ask will be given to you, and whatever you seek, even to half my kingdom, will be done. This time she replies directly, If I have found favor with you, your majesty, and if the king is pleased, spare my life. This is my request, and spare my people, this is my desire, for my people and I have been sold to destruction, death, and annihilation. The king replies, Who is this, and where is the one who would devise such a scheme? And Esther deals a blow to the villain with these words, The adversary and the enemy is this evil Haman. At this point, you can imagine Haman is terrified before the most powerful people in the empire, and soon, he is sentenced to death by the king. 
Esther and the king then invite Mordecai to join them as Esther reveals her Jewish identity and her relationship to Mordecai. And they launch a plan. They decide to write another irrevocable decree, where on the same day that the Jews were to be slaughtered, that they may assemble and defend themselves against any who would attack them on that day. This was a great signal from the highest office in the land that the Jews were not to be attacked. Instead, the Jews had been granted favor by the Persian king all over Persia. And finally, as that day comes months later, we come to see that the Jews overpowered all of those who attempted to annihilate them. The great holocaust of the Old Testament had been avoided, and Haman, the Hitler of the Old Testament, was to be hanged on the gallows. But let's zoom out a bit and think about what this story tells us. Despite the Israelite disobedience to God's law in the land of Canaan, God still did not forget his promises to the people, especially the promise made to Abraham that he would become a great nation with many offspring in the land of Canaan, and that through one of his offspring all the nations of the world would be blessed. We see even in this story of Esther and the Jews that God preserves the people of Abraham so that his plan and promises continue. So as we close this Old Testament period, we need to remind ourselves of where we are in the story. The people of the southern kingdom of Judah have been allowed to return to the land. They've recently escaped annihilation, and they are rebuilding the city of Jerusalem with a clock ticking. Messiah is coming. Despite this time of distress and difficulty, hope remains. The seed of Eve, the seed of Abraham, the seed of David, the one that they have been waiting for will be coming soon. Thanks for listening to The Bible Brief. The Bible Brief is brought to you by the Bible Literacy Foundation, dedicated to helping people like you learn the Bible. Have you donated to the Bible Literacy Foundation? We'd love for you to partner with us so that we can expand our reach and grow. Your support means more people will have access to the life-changing story and message of the Bible. The easy way to donate is to click the link in the show notes to this episode. Alternatively, you can go to our website, BibleLiteracyFoundation.com, and click Donate. Thank you for making this show possible. Copyright Bible Literacy Foundation 2022